did Trump think Kim Kardashian was leader of North Korea? Why is Melania hiding under Brighton Pier? Last episode, we were chatting about a cardboard cutout of Kylie in Specsavers and whether that is life-size. And a listener, uh, who let's call him Bob, has just worked with Kylie and he says, Mm. I can confirm she is five feet tall. Oh, right, good, yeah. And is legit involved in the designing of her Specsavers range. She also designs a range of cushions, apparently. Yes, they're available from Next. Uh, Sequined eyelet curtains as well. Bob's last fact about Kylie and her specs is that she doesn't wear her glasses in publicity shots because she doesn't like the fact she has to wear them. That's some interesting psychology, isn't it? I'm so full of self-loathing for these specs that I'm going to design some and make other people wear them and then pretend I love them. Specky, specky four eyes with their declining vision. (laughs) Not me, Kylie. I'm ageless. That's That's it, isn't it? It's an aging thing. It does make you feel older when you have to start to wear glasses. I started wearing glasses when I was one and a half. Do you know, actually, since we last recorded, Kylie turned 50. Oh. Wow. She um, posted a photo, as I think I will when I turn 50, of herself naked straddling a diamond-encrusted guitar. Yeah, I remember my dad doing that for his 50th. (laughs) It's going to be cold, was my first thought. Those diamonds are going to be abrasive upon her nipples. And... Although she does look amazing for 50, I think in a way it's slightly a shame that what she's still doing is saying, just like she was when she was 20, look, sex and music, those are my things. Because as we're learning, you know, cushions and eyewear, she does that too. It's a nice guitar. Sure, it is a nice guitar. It's a country style thing, isn't it? Because yeah. that's her, I don't know if you noticed, that's her thing at the moment, her, her new oh, album is. of course it is. I mean, Madonna went through that phase. Yeah. Dolly Parton yeah. is still... Well, hold on. Dolly Parton is legitimately a country star. Yes. Uh, what Kylie's done is a, a country-inspired album uh, in the same way that uh, McDonald's might have Chinese-style ribs or whatever. <laughs> it's a, a tribute to some country memes. What I mean is you have Dolly Parton leading the way for being a sure. glamorous sexy country star yeah. well into other people's retirement age bracket and madonna did a little bit of that although less sexy and more flannel shirty yeah now without googling it what would you say madonna's current phase is the last thing i was aware of madonna doing was falling over backwards in that versace dress at the brits which was amazing but not for the reasons she intended oh so madonna's current phase is not slapstick then exactly yeah that's kind of it's true though isn't it think about it i think Madonna's slightly out the limelight, isn't she? I wonder if that's a choice. But uh, it was the Met Ball uh, in May and the theme was Catholicism, basically. And they put Madonna at the top of a big flight of stairs. She's on home turf. Exactly. With a load of monk backing singers and she sang Like a Prayer. Wow. To people like Rihanna wearing Pope hats. Perfect use of Madonna. Okay, yeah, exactly. Optimal. Okay, good. Thank you for the Madonna update. I just wonder, isn't it interesting when like people who have massive mainstream careers slightly disappear off the radar like yesterday at one o'clock in the morning when i was sitting on a train and bored i went on imdb just to see what james cameron was up to what is he up to i suddenly thought yeah i suddenly thought wow he directed the two biggest films of all time and now what what's he done for the last 10 years is he just like driving submarines around yeah did he do his marianas trench film already he's done a bunch of sort of imax films but i don't think they really count like proper movies he hasn't made one since 2009 with avatar so anyway i looked at it guess what he's doing is it Avatar 2 and 3? And? Titanic 2? It's Avatar 2, Avatar 3, Avatar 4, and Avatar 5. That is what is currently in production at the moment. Well, that will keep him busy. I'm quite excited to see Avatar 2, but I doubt my excitement will continue until Avatar 5. That's my guess. I think that 
a more legit question is what was James Cameron doing between Titanic and Avatar? That's a 12-year stretch. Just slowly digitising Sigourney Weaver, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's a good, good use of his time. We've had some feedback as well from Ben in Washington, who says he was listening to last month's show and heard the story about the concerned atheist. A lot of people are very, very invested in the dating life of Mr. Concerned Atheist. He's the uh, bloke who was uh, flirting with the Christian lady over bickies. Or flirting with a woman we don't even know to be Christian at a church That's true. over bickies. Yes, a woman he presumes to be Christian and how does he tell her that he's not? That's basically it. Ben says, I want to reassure him that the difference in beliefs doesn't have to get in the way of a potential relationship. Yes. My partner and I are a testament to that. Testifying. Well, you do use the word testament, which, yeah, is a mm. religious word. Uh, I met him, my partner, about five years ago whilst he was in seminary, so religion yeah. came up pretty quickly. <laughs> it's sort of unavoidable there. Yeah, that's a definite sign that the person you fancy <laughs> is into it. There's no like, oh, I turned up to the ceremony because I heard there were free toasties on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, i grew up in a christian household continues ben and whilst i understand his beliefs i don't share them we've agreed to both acknowledge that there is no way to prove the existence of god and not to try to persuade the other to change their beliefs Very i mean civilized. if only the leaders of all the world religions did the same thing ben imagine all the people <laughs> my advice to concerned atheist would be to skip church for a sunday or two before asking this woman on a date that may prompt her to ask where he was or at least say that she hadn't seen him for a few weeks and that would be his opportunity to explain that he's not religious okay yeah that seems sensible unless concerned atheist is worried that if he gets out the game for a couple of church seasons yes that someone else will sneak in there over the bickies this woman's got good bicky banter she's uh, you know a hot slice of church action i think it's worth taking the risk though I, I i mean i definitely think even if someone else has got involved in that setting it's unlikely to have escalated very quickly i still think two weeks later it's all right for him to say i'm back and i'm ready for you now just thinking of greece too here if he comes back on a motorbike wearing a leather jacket then she'll be unable to resist. Oh, sure. Here's a question from Ryan from Melbourne, mm. Australia, who is 21. And he says, I am more concerned about running out of time in life than anyone this young has any right to be. With this in mind, mid last year, I decided that if I didn't start growing my hair out in my really early 20s, I'd never have the chance before I needed to look professional and be employed. Now it's coming along nicely but it is currently in an awkward phase of being too long to be tidy, but too short to tie back. I have resorted to headbands, but as a result of having this awkward length hair, many times a day, I fantasise about giving up and cutting it all off. But Ollie, answer me this. Would it be a good idea to, when you're young, grow out your hair and make wigs from it so that when you're older and your hair is thinning or grey, you have access to a more youthful version of your own real hair in your original colour and style. Okay, so if what you're asking, Ryan, is age 37, do I wish I had in my airing cupboard a ball of hair that I grew from my own head 20 years ago that I could now apply with a safety pin or glue, my answer would be fuck no. Uh -huh. like, it's a stupid idea. However, I do now have a bald patch, uh, it's not too noticeable because I do have really thick hair that sort of turns in around it like a hawthorn hedge. And you're very tall. It's above people's eyeline. Um, but, you know, it is there. So it is true that if I thought that would bother me, 
25 years hence than 25 years ago, perhaps I could have looked into doing this. But I think the reality is when you get to an age where that's a consideration, your plan from when you were 21 will seem irrelevant. Just as if I said to you now, uh, you know, dig up the time capsule you left in your granny's garden when you were seven, you probably wouldn't be interested in what was inside it apart from through nostalgia. Like the young, that younger version of yourself doesn't have that much bearing on, on how you feel right now. Firstly, I would just like to say I will much prefer the grey colour of my hair than the kind of boring mouse colour that the rest of it is pre-grey. I mean, spiritually, you've had grey hair since seven. Spiritually, yes. Physically, it's coming in slowly ever since I was 23. Not fast enough. Not fast enough. I do wonder how long a wig made out of real human hair looks lustrous and good for. So, like, if you had the wig made with your 20-year-old hair and then age 70 wore it, would it just be kind of brittle and gross? Also, you need to grow your hair really long. Even to make a short wig, you need a foot of hair. Well, I've looked into this, actually, because you, you can get companies to make wigs from your own hair. Um, the reason that most of these companies are set up, actually, is for women who lose their hair because of chemotherapy. Yeah. Um, so there is a sort of legitimate need that you can sort of understand why people would want a wig of their own hair and need it, need it quickly, rather than, as Helen suggests, sitting on it for two or three decades. But what they require is four to six inches of your own hair in sections. Right. Um, what you need to do is grow it into several small ponytails and then you cut it just above the hairband so that you're sending a straight cut with lots of hair in the best condition you've got. Uh, also, presumably, you've got some fun finger puppets right there as well, you know, before you <laughs> send it off. Um, uh, but it's not as easy as just growing it four to six inches and then cutting it into bits because it can take three heads of hair to make one wig. And also, that's a very short wig. If you're giving them four inches of hair... I thought mm. they needed like 10 inches to make a short wig because the knotting takes up so much hair. And also, um, most ponytails contain only up to 80% usable hair. I don't know what makes the 20% unusable, but there you go. Also, having wigs made is extremely expensive, isn't it? It's thousands. It is, although actually I was surprised it's not madly expensive in comparison to getting a premium wig anyway. So, I mean, obviously, you know, you can get one for 20 quid from the joke shop. But a proper premium wig made from real hair is about £2,000 anyway. And to make one from your own hair, a premium wig is about the same. Uh, and you can, there are companies that offer it for, the cheapest I've seen is $420 US dollars to make a wig from your own hair. Um, but presumably that's like a sort of toupee type thing. Also, like if you get your hair made into a wig now, you might choose a really shit style. Like imagine you got your hair made into a wig in 1987. And then 30 years later, you're like, Axl Rose style doesn't suit me now. <laughs> I'd like to see your hair at Axl Rose style, though, Helen. Well, you never will. If you've got a question, email your question to answer me this podcast at googlemail.com. Answer me this podcast at googlemail.com. Here's a question from Anne from New York. Uh, she says, uh, I'm in an American Airlines flight. So she's texted us from the plane. How exciting. Mm. Um, and they have their own magazine with Karen Gillan on the cover. Um, I just had to Google Karen Gillan, by the way. I didn't know who that was. Do you know who that is? I, I know that she was in Doctor Who and the recent Jumanji film and a bunch of other things, but I haven't seen her in much. She was in the Kevin Bishop show. <laughs> I probably saw her in that. But since then, she's quite a big deal, I've just discovered. She's in Avengers and Guardians of the Galaxy. She's doing well. 
She's in The Big Short as well. Is Karen Gillan a female character in The Big Short that has something more to do than being sexy and turning to the camera and delivering some financial exegesis? I doubt it. Anyway, uh, Anne in New York, she says, uh, Helen asked me this, what is the point of airline magazines? Why would anyone want to be on their cover, especially someone as famous as Karen Gillan? Okay, I have been on a lot of flights in the past year and a lot of them have been without seatback televisions. I know, imagine the privation. Uh, and also a lot of them wouldn't even let you use small electrical devices during takeoff and landing. Yeah, isn't it weird that the airlines have not worked out what the rules should be on that one yet, and they all have their own policy? Yeah. That strikes me as a thing that should not be an airline policy issue. Like, either it is safe or isn't safe for you to be looking at your portable devices. Sort it out, airlines. Thus, uh, I have discovered that some of these airline mags are now really quite good. Yeah. Because they know that they are competing with entertainment we bring on board ourselves. So they've really upped their game. There's some beautiful photography. There's some articles that are actually interesting rather than just a press release for like some Disneyland knockoff theme park. Yeah, or a perfume. Yeah, well, this is one purpose of the magazines. Uh, Selling shit. Yeah, sure. Luxury goods, watches, but also the destinations that the airlines serve and specific hotels and restaurants and resorts and events such as music tours or food festivals or that kind of thing. But they do it in a way that actually is quite readable now. They get decent journalists to write about destinations that they are familiar with. And to be honest, also, I'm sitting there with nothing to do That is the only time Mm. I'm likely to read a magazine feature about Karen Gillan when I'm leaving through the plane mag. (laughs) They know that you're a captive audience because also a lot of people read these. I think 80% of passengers read them, according to some survey I looked at. And often you're you're just looking for the in-flight entertainment listings or people are looking for the route maps. That's the second most popular reason to look in these magazines just to look at that little map and see where else american airlines serves yeah isn't that weird i do that and i am not even interested in airline routes i wouldn't list it in my top 100 interests and yet when i'm on a plane i'm like oh Ljubljana, we should go there Mm. it's a conversation starter isn't it did you know you can go to tel aviv from gatwick i don't know why that's interesting but you know i'm not interested go for the route maps stay for the long read about salt flats or something i mean to be (laughs) honest i will read any article about packing that is my boring, yes. peaceful, fun thing to do. What, like the strategy, like shrink wrap your yeah. clothes or whatever. Or like, here's a yeah. celebrity I've never heard of talking about the five things they always have in their carry-on luggage. Adore it. Mm-hmm. Adore it. And But these magazines, they're not even just for passengers. A lot of them have their own websites now. They're getting a lot of readership from that. And, and the readership is pretty massive. No, that's weird. The idea of like the downloadable tablet edition in a world where we're not confined to media choices and we have the world to choose from. What are you reading? Oh, it's just the in-flight magazine of Etihad. It's weird. (laughs) Uh, Why would you do that? Well, because maybe the airlines are like, the one cool thing we have is these photos that we commissioned someone to take of the pyramids. Mm. You know, we paid a lot for people to go and take photos of uh, anthills in the desert. And then people might look at those photos and be like, you know what, I will book a short break to Spain. I guess there's that issue as well of kind of differentiating your brand actually especially when you're on the plane yeah there's not that much because there's all this stuff isn't there oh who did you fly oh i flew lufthansa what were they like yeah they're all right that conversation people have which they insist on having yeah i always think if you're flying with a major airline from european airport like the answer is always yeah it was fine it was fine because of course it's like all the planes are either built by boeing or airbus 
all hopefully comply with the same safety regulations. All of them have got a humorous safety video now. Yeah, exactly. They even use the same caterers, although they put their own spin on it. So really, all they have to differentiate their brand is literally the branding, the logo, the colour of everything, the colour of the air stewards' uniforms and their customer service, and the in-flight magazine. Like, it's a way, isn't it, with the in-flight magazine to say, this is who we are, this is what we believe in, this is the kind of airline we are. I don't think that's really true. I mean, it, I, I've been on so many flights recently where there's no seatback entertainment or power PowerPoint. So you can't, like, work and you can't watch a movie and you're reduced to reading a book. Imagine. But also, these magazines have a pretty high circulation. BA's High Life magazine claims to have 3.6 million readers worldwide. That is huge. That is mm. worth it for Karen Gillan. Yeah, and th- those readers are going to be spending more time reading it as well. Yeah. And niche audiences, I mean, we would say this, wouldn't we? Because we sell advertising to podcast listeners. <laughs> but niche audiences are a great way to tell advertisers that they're reaching a particular audience that they want. So that's why BA, for example, have Business Life magazine as well as High Life magazine. And that's just for business class and first class. I mean, that's really narrow audience. But at the same time, if you know you are reaching, you know, all 30 people that are flying first class Heathrow to Denver that day, then that's really valuable if you run a five-star hotel in Denver, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a very responsive audience. Uh, Surveys show that 30% of readers book a holiday after reading about a place in a magazine. And if you're a travel-related business... You know that if you get people on a plane, they are people who are open to travel. And they might also have the money to do it. It's like there's a a magazine I get called Ferment, which uh, comes with a beer box subscription that I get. Uh And it's just about craft beer, which frankly I'm not really interested in reading about. But because I do like drinking, (laughs) I do read it because it's glossy and it's pretty and it tells me a little bit about the beers that are in the box and... It kind of looks cool and, you know, it's all because it's craft beer. It's all about these independent producers in Brighton or whatever and how they've stumbled into the business. And, you know, they are advertising me directly as a craft beer drinker. But, you know, well done them. Clever idea. Not a magazine I would buy. (laughs) And and just anecdotally, you and I know, Ollie, that people do read these magazines because Answer Me, this used to be on BA's in-flight entertainment system. Yes. And people used to send us photos of the listing in the magazine. Yes. I wouldn't spot that. I don't read the listings for the audio channels on an in-flight entertainment system, but people are that desperate, that hard up for stuff to do with their eyes. Yeah, you're right. It's kind of the in-flight equivalent of reading the back of the shampoo bottle when you go for a shit and you've forgotten to bring your magazine, isn't it? Because also a lot of people are nervous flyers and it can be quite boring even if you're not scared of it. So... Just anything is distracting. I know what you're thinking, Helen. It's time to play a quiz based around the titles of in-flight magazines. hello. And that's just as well, (laughs) because I have some examples here of in-flight magazines. You need to match the magazine to the airline. Are you ready? Out of all 250 in-flight entertainment mags, okay, I can try. Altitude. Which airline stocks the magazine Altitude? I mean, it really could be any of them, because one thing that airlines have in common is going high in the sky. That is true. I could have equally chosen Elevate, which is the in-flight magazine of Air Serbia, but I didn't. I chose Altitude. Oh, jeez. Altitude. It was Air Moldova. Really? Tip of your tongue, wasn't it? Tip of your tongue. Okay, which airline stocks the in-flight magazine Holland Herald? Oh, I know that one. That is the uh, longest continuing in-flight magazine and it is KLM's and it's been going since 1966. Correct. 52 years. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Do you know the name of Air France's in-flight magazine? It's called... Boff. Magazine. Mm. 
That's actually kind of classy, though, isn't that it? That is also lazy as fuck. It Why isn't the airline <laughs> just called planes? <laughs> uh, okay, finally, uh, which international airline based in America, I'm giving you hints here, mm-hmm. stocks Sky Magazine? Sky. Not sadly the 90s oh. Sky Magazine with the gender-neutral cover stars and Karen Krasanovich. Like loaded for kids. Yeah. <laughs> I miss Sky Magazine. I miss so many magazines of the 90s. I really wanted to be a journalist yeah. in the 90s because I loved magazines so much and then they all shut down. Yeah. So I did this instead. Wow. Sky Magazine. Okay. Delta? Yes. Very good. Well done. It was Delta, Sky Magazine. But it's still a generic title, isn't it? Yeah. I, I think my favourite out of all the major airlines, although they've now closed, sadly, was... Uh, do you remember BMI Baby? Which in itself is a pun, yeah. so quite a fun name for an airline. And you just realised. Uh, Be My Baby. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I guess if even you didn't realise when a pun was being played upon you, that's why the business strategy didn't work. <laughs> um, but uh, BMI Baby used to stock their magazine was called Yeah Baby. Oh. Now, I know that's horrifically 90s, but at the time that would have been quite cool, I think. Why are all Yao's fan sites just about one thing? The only way is up is not the only song she sings. What about Abandon Me? One true woman or good thing going? Her single from 96. You should make your own Yaz site to fill in the gaps. Since you seem to think all the current Yaz sites are crap, go to squarespace.com, build your Yaz site and put Yaz back on the map. The only way is up. Thank you very much to Squarespace for sponsoring Answer Me This. Yes, although they haven't invited us still to feature on their homepage of Brand Ambassadors. I don't know why. John Malkovich is there. Someone, Helen, trying to sell Peruvian quinoa chocolate bars is on their homepage, oh, but not us. Come on. We fit seamlessly into that hipster world. Why, why are we not there? We fit as well into that hipster world as quinoa does into a chocolate bar. <laughs> I've recently heard from very long-term listener to answer me this ace coggins wow. and i remember meeting ace coggins when she was but a child and answer me this is 100th episode she came with her mom yeah. she was really young then i think she's since done a master's degree that's how long this show has been around and she said mm. thanks to the squarespace plugs on answer me this i thought i'd see what the fuss was about what's her website she's not mentioned maybe it's an answer me this fan site and that's why she doesn't want to tell me what it is yeah she wants to tell you it exists but she doesn't want to send you the link or maybe it's all cat memes and she knows i'm not interested but i am interested in her well-being and the continuation of her life with us as this little audio backdrop to it but anyway if you want to be like ace coggins and you already have answer me this in common <laughs> she's our john malkovich <laughs> get into Ace Coggins's head through a tiny door <laughs> then go to squarespace.com slash answer you can use their two week free trial and have a go with their templates and their drag and drop tools to create the website of your dreams remember you get 10% off your first year's order of a website or domain using our discount code answer, answer. here's a question from Patrick who says Ollie your House of Commons looks terribly cramped, so I'm glad you're getting it extended and a new kitchen put in. Um, <laughs> I think he means the British House of Commons in London. Yes, he's just choosing me as a, a British representative. Yep. And the government and the opposition sit so close to each other. Mm. So, Ollie, answer me this. Has anyone ever tried to hit another MP with that big mace right in the middle? <laughs> uh, well, uh, to answer this, Helen, uh, I have searched for the word mace... In the Wikipedia article, List of Incidents of Grave Disorder in the British House of Commons. Oh. Um, <laughs> all this research 
is taken from Hansard, which is the official document of what happens in the House of Commons, and that uh, obviously pre-exists when they had cameras uh, in Parliament. Yeah. There is one example of this happening. <gasps> uh, and it was quite recent. It was Michael Heseltine on the 27th of May, 1976. I'll read you the Guardian article from the time. And oh, thank, uh, you. thank you for bringing this to our attention because uh, uh, w- without you, Patrick, I wouldn't have known this bit of parliamentary history because it happened just before uh, I was uh, politically sentient. Uh, so we- here it is. This is what the Guardian said at the time. Nothing like it has been seen in the Commons chamber for more than 40 years. As soon as the whips announced that a government majority had been achieved by 304 votes to 303, it's a close race, Labour MPs stood up and began to sing the red flag. I'm not familiar with that song. It's old Tannenbaum, it's the German thing. Oh, Tannenbaum, oh, Tannenbaum, oh, yeah, we'll keep that the red is, flag yeah. flying. Wow, that's another example of a, a, an anthem being translated, isn't it, with the same tune? I hadn't oh, thought Christmas about that. Tree. Anyway, yeah. uh, as they reached the words, we'll keep the red flag flying here, Mr Michael Heseltine, Tory spokesman at the conclusion of the debate, jumped up and seized the mace from its rack beneath the Speaker's chair. As he waved it aggressively towards the Labour benches, his shadow cabinet colleague, Mr James Pryor, wrested it from his hands and replaced it in its rack the wrong way round. Oh, so they both got <laughs> fired. Exactly. <Yeah. laughs> what I love about British parliamentary reporting, even in The Guardian, is that equal emphasis is given to the fact that a member of parliament <laughs> aggressively, threateningly waved a mace at some uh, colleagues uh, to the fact that someone put it in the wrong way round and therefore a terrible breach of etiquette upon a royal material was made. A shameful day for Britain. <laughs> <laughs> Whilst Mr Pryor was changing ends, so to speak, a fracas developed in front of the Tory front bench. Mr Geoffrey Rippon, a former Tory minister, seemed to be in full physical conflict with Mr Dennis Canavan, Labour MP for Stirlingshire West. What, so Michael Hesertine had done this and then two other MPs just started naked wrestling or something? Yeah, well, I mean, so look, I'm not going to say who started it. I wasn't there. Uh, Obviously, Michael Heseltine felt aggrieved at having just lost a debate by one vote. Uh, But I would point out that what they were discussing was the aircraft and shipbuilding bill. It's... Very heady stuff. Doesn't seem that emotive to me. Is it more because of the heavily left context of the red flag? Sure. But they had just won, and they were happy about it. They were being dicks, but you're being more of a dick to then pick up a mace. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, that seems like an escalation. Yeah. Anyway, as the altercation turned into something very like a brawl in the middle (laughs) of the floor of the Commons, Deputy Speaker Samaya Gulpan rose and declared, The House is suspended for 20 minutes uh, and cutting to the chase uh, when they then resumed they immediately adjourned so as to not have another fisticuffs that's a very dramatic story in the uh, wikipedia article incidents with the mace in the house of commons they are <laughs> few and far between so yeah. the next one was 1988 when ron brown labor mp for leith picked up the mace during a debate on the so-called poll tax and threw it to the floor in protest. The mace was oh, damaged. Wow. I remember Bre- that. He had to pay £1,500 towards the cost of mace repairs. How much is that mace worth? It must be a fortune. Yeah. Yeah, well, priceless. So the thing is, right, so we should explain what the mace is. Okay, so if you're listening overseas, we're not talking about like a sort of rape spray. Or or like the uh, outer husk of nutmeg. Oh, it's just kind of sure. a cudgel, doesn't it? But it's, it's a much yes. more ornate cudgel than yeah. the name would suggest. It's a five-foot-long silver stick covered in gold with a crown on the end. It's like a big cocktail swizzle stick made of gold. Yes! 
that is exactly what it's like. But if you stir a cocktail with it, you will get fined. So the, the reason why it's offensive to people is it has two prongs to it, right? And the mace doesn't, the offence does. It's got a single prong. The, the first prong of the offence would be, essentially, it's not the MP's property, it's, it's representing the Crown when it's yeah. in there. Technically, in our constitution, without it being there, because it's representing the mm. monarch, the House can't pass laws. So it's fundamental to our completely ridiculous constitution. <laughs> but nonetheless, it is fundamental. No wonder Oliver Cromwell told them to take the mace away because <laughs> it's stupid. Uh, no, not this one, because um, this one dates from the reign of Charles II. So that whole um, troublesome period of uh, history for the monarchy had just been resolved. So, But that's the second prong of why it's offensive to people. I think regardless of whether you believe that it's ridiculous or not, that we can only have a parliamentary debate in the presence of a stick re- representing the Queen. The point is that particular stick does date from the reign of Charles II. So it is a properly priceless object that's old, and it's been used every day in a uh, performative, but nonetheless, you know, fundamental part of our constitution. So to pick it up and, you know, fuck about with it, it's just unnecessary, isn't it? A bit rude. But then it's also unnecessary to have a symbolic stick. It's the equivalent of, like, if you disagree with a judge going up and taking his wig off. It's just like, just don't do that. It's rude. Yeah, but we were asked whether anyone had used this mace like a pugil stick for contact violence, and it appears that Mm. they haven't. So even just touching it and moving it is terrifying enough. So in 2009, the Labour MP John McDonnell, he was very angry during a debate about the proposed expansion of Heathrow Airport, took the mace, dropped it on an empty bench, so no harm to the mace, and he was suspended for five days for contempt of parliament. Hmm. And I'm just saying, if you don't have these symbolic objects, then there are fewer ways to cause artificial offence. Maybe you should just get rid of them. You can't have the Queen sitting there the whole time. she get really bored. She's already really bored. We're presuming. We don't know. Although she does seem quite bored when she's interviewed these days. Yeah, that's a um, boring job. What is interesting is when the Queen opens the House of Parliament, which she actually does from the House of Lords, doesn't she? When she does it from the Lords' chamber... Yeah, she doesn't want to mix with the Commons... The um, stick that they have in the Lords, which represents the Queen, is removed because she's there. So you only see one or the other. You don't see the stick and the Queen in the same place. Don't you think she would have wanted to sub herself in with the, the mace at various boring ceremonial banquets? Basically, any banquet that didn't involve sitting next to Michelle Obama, just send the stick. I just love the idea that Prince Charles could send the stick to open a new arts department at a university or something. I mean, it would be a great photo opportunity these days, wouldn't it? It would actually be brilliant. They were originally weapons... They used to symbolise the authority of the military, but also they used to have blades on them, I think. Yeah. Well, okay. so so to address that point of Patrick's question, actually, it's not a ridiculous point. When he says um, your House of Commons looks terribly cramped and the government and opposition sit so close to each other. uh, I mean, the mace is a red herring because it's not intended to be there as a weapon, but it is there to show, I suppose, military and uh, processional strength. But... The reason that they, in fact, are not so close, they are, in fact, uh, exactly two swords lengths away. Wow. Is, symbolically, that they're not going to have a physical fight. So they did consider that in designing the chamber. What if you got an extra long sword? You could just really circumvent that safety measure. Again, just not not terribly British, is it, of our elected representatives? Independent thought. Well, you know, not playing by fair play and rules. Back in the day, they would, uh, and by the day, I mean 1650 or something, they would uh, leave the chamber and, and settle things by duel. I mean, that's really settling things very definitively. I'm an answer me this fan. I listen with my nan. 
She is not so keen, she finds it too obscene. I follow them on Twitter, though Ashton Kutcher's fitter. I want to take things further, just one step short of murder. I want to look like Holly Man, I want to smell like Holly Man, I want to be like Holly Man, I want to chase like Holly Man, I want to look like Holly Man, I want to talk like Holly This episode of Answer Me This is sponsored by Bluffers Guides. Do you remember Bluffers Guides? They are back. They're back, baby. They they started in 1965. They, they've been around as long as Robert Downey Jr. and J.K. Rowling and Chris Rock and Dr. Dre. Bjork and Slash. Okay, so what we're saying is it's a brand with heritage, um, but they have been brought back by Haynes Publishing, who have completely revamped the way they look, and they're still basically the same idea, though. They're little pocket-sized guides that you can carry around with you that bring you up to scratch on any given topic. Yes. Um, So um, there's one on beer, there's one on wine, uh, there's one on cats, uh, there's one on chocolate, there's one on jazz. Opera, social media, golf etiquette yeah but the idea of the bluffers guides is to make you well informed about a subject in just a couple of hours and they know that you want to me this listeners love to spend a short amount of time acquiring information about a thing yeah it won't surprise you to know helen that as a child i used to gaze longingly at bluffers guides in the bookshop because the very concept was so exciting to me that in just (laughs) in basically in a two-hour read i'd know enough about a subject to make it appear that i knew loads and that's been my modus operandi ever since the seeds were sown way earlier than we ever imagined for this show (laughs) exactly so all of those classic guides have been republished but also they've got a brand new one which is the bluffer's guide to brexit Uh, i haven't read it yet um and maybe the prime minister should but uh, (laughs) that's going to be published uh, this month uh, if you want to get any of the bluffers guides they are all out now for 6.99 a piece and we will link to them at answermethispodcast.com now listeners if you want to send us questions in your own voice you can skype us on answer me this you can call us on 0208-123-5877 but at the moment the safest thing to do is to record a voice memo and email it to us as jacob here has done hi helen ollie and martin uh, i'm wondering what the plan was um, for the the capacity of old-fashioned razor disposal units that you'd find in bathroom behind bathroom cabinets and bathroom sinks in houses that were built in the 50s. Um, it seems like there's not a way to retrieve the razors, and eventually the razor disposal area would have to fill up. Um, I don't think that they predicted um, that we would stop using that kind of razor, obviating the issue um but what was the plan it seems a little short-sighted i had never heard of these razor disposal units until now thanks to jacob what are they it seems to be a little razor blade size slit in the back of a bathroom cabinet or the bathroom mirror or even in the wall through which you drop one of those single use flat razor blades invented in 1901 by king camp gillette uh-huh. and these seem to be a feature of I think maybe American houses. And I think it's first half of the 20th century, these were quite common features. But why? What, why can't you just put it in the bin? Was it because razors are dangerous? Yeah, razors are dangerous. And they thought, put it in the wall. 
who gives a shit? Out of sight, out of mind. Someone in the future's problem yeah. when they come to renovate the house and find a pile of blades inside the hollow of the wall. <laughs> Live for today. There is no tomorrow. Classic attitudes. Uh, also, these razor blades were so thin that a lot of them have just rusted away into powder. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Which is kind of like recycling. Ish. It seems like these stopped being built into houses in the 1960s, which was when the cartridge razor blade was invented and therefore right. the rectangular little flat one became less ubiquitous. And you end up throwing away more, actually, don't you? Yes. That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Like someone invents a disposable razor because it's a bit tedious having to sharpen a knife or buy a special knife. But then that's the perfect product in, in the 1950s. And then they innovate it by bulking it up and giving you more things to throw away until eventually you're throwing away the whole thing because it's so cheap. And then you'd have to have a massive hole in the wall that would take all your plastic. And then you'd basically be living in a... House full of rubbish. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Houses having these built-in features for stuff. The house I grew up in had, uh, on the loo wall, a permanent box for that square, single-sheet, waterproof toilet paper. Oh, weird. Who wants that in their home? Next, <laughs> That is school toilet paper, yeah. It's a sort of satirical toilet paper. My parents' house, actually, my mum lives in a, an old house. Parts of it date back to kind of 1600s. Wow. And they have a dining room, which is the most original room in the house. And there's a little wooden ledge built into the wall. How big? When it pulls out the wall, I would say eight, nine inches. Huh. Is it for a dagger? No, uh, it's for your serving staff to sit on. Huh. It probably was seen as a kindness at the time. Yeah. Like, we don't make our servants stand in the corner of the room like they're animals. We have a piece of wood that pulls out the wall that they can perch on so comfortably. And during periods after domestic servants were likely to inhabit your parents' house, uh, what, did you use it as a cheese board or something? No, we, we used it in the sense that my dad would uh, show eight-year-olds like me and my friends. You never guess what this is. I've never seen it used for anything other than that, but it's a nice little feature. It's quite fun. Here's a question from Zib, who says, Ollie, answer me this. When were water guns invented? Well, I'm glad you asked, because uh, without researching, I would have assumed when plastic was invented, right? Because my whole life, that's what water guns look like. It's a squirty pistol based on uh, compressing air in plastic. But no. You could have a, a metal one, but then wouldn't it get rusty? You could have, Helen, in 1896, wow. a cast iron one. Wow. Yeah, that's the first patent. But basically, it seems, ever since guns were invented... Uh, young boys in particular, I guess, but children have wanted to play with a fun junior version <laughs> of what all those soldiers are killing themselves with. So um, it, right from the beginning, people have found ways to put water in guns for kids. Um, but the first patent was in 1896, made from cast iron. Uh, and the way it worked was it had a little kind of eyedropper type squeeze bulb on the bottom that you'd fill up with water and then you squeezed it manually with your hands Later, they adjusted that so that it was squeezing the trigger that squeezed the bulb to make the water shoot out. But yeah, 1896, made of cast iron. Obviously, the super soaker was the gun of our childhoods. The soup soaker. Squirt people with soup. <laughs> Seriously, register that now, Helen. Don't delay. <laughs> 1989, the super soaker came to be. And 1977 was the first air pressure pump water gun. It was called the Cosmic Liquidator. 
which I think we can all agree is not as good a name as Super Soaker. I mean, that also sounds like the name of a soup. Yes, it does, actually, yeah. Or like a blender in which you would make soup. And then Super Soaker got bought by Nerf. Oh. Which is quite interesting because, therefore, the thing that I was terrified of as a child and the thing that I enjoyed playing with as a child in the gun-shaped department Joined are forces. now both owned by the same company. Yeah. It's very confusing. Um, but Nerf, it's quite interesting if you go on their website, clearly are making a point not to call them guns. What are you supposed to call them? Water projectile devices? Uh, they're called water blasters. And um, the, the traditional Nerf gun, if you like, the, the foam one, that's called like a dart cartridge dispenser or something. <laughs> it's ridiculous because it's clearly a gun in the shape of a gun. But yes, it's a blaster. It's a dart blaster. It's not a gun. It's like a, a gun. I don't know if you know, Helen, but a gun is actually a bullet blaster. A blood soaker. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. I'm Wilson, the ball from Castaway. And here is my song about my favourite balls. <clears throat> Football, rugby ball, volleyball ball, tennis ball, zoe ball, basketball, netball, handball, debutante ball, bowling ball, baseball, big sweaty ball. Answer Me This Sports Day, a marathon of fun and games, out now at answermethispodcast.com slash albums. Here's a question from Fluffy, who says, I am 11. I have recently challenged my 52-year-old mum to a 10-kilometre race. Wow. The race is in four months. Ollie, answer me this. What kind of thing do you recommend me to do to train? Oh, because this is my specialist area. Yes, you'd love to run. And love to win. And love to train most of all. I mean, you know, the running's okay, but it's the challenge of relentlessly exercising for a purpose that's vague over a series of weeks. That's what I really love. Yeah. You know, what we, we both love is uh, feeling <laughs> a lifetime of humiliation through the medium of exercise. Fluffy says, if I win, my mum says I can have a cat and I really, 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 really want one. It sounds a bit to me like maybe your mum's agreed to this because she thinks... Either you'll get bored with training yourself because you're 11 years old, so she's not going to really have to train and run a 10k run because you'll get bored of it, or she'll just buy you off with a cat and then you'll forget about it. Like, sounds like since the goal is the cat, she can, at any point, she can say, you know what, I'm 52, fuck this, here's a cat. Well, maybe your mum really wants the challenge to motivate her to run a 10k, because mm. I would think an 11 year old would be quite speedy competition, but I guess she is already open to the idea of you having a cat so you know you could probably get one out of her even if you lose because she's agreed to it <laughs> under certain circumstances which means she is cat willing well when you say lose i think this is everything that i've seen online in terms of training when you're 11 years old is very much about don't make it too competitive i mean this is advice obviously for adults about how to make sure their children are happy when they're training to be in a race but i you know you seem like a uh, an advanced 11-year-old Fluffy, so I'm just going to tell you how it is. Probably best for your health that you don't really push yourself in terms of time mm -hmm. um, because, you know, those races are designed for adults. So although training together is a good idea and maybe looking at your times and stuff because you will incentivize each other to uh, prepare for the race, basically what it says is if you're a kid taking part in a 10K race, just focus on the participation. Focus on the fact that you are achieving something by taking part in the race that's amazing, even if you just managed to complete it. Don't worry about what time you get. Now, speaking for the, your mother, 
uh, I imagine she'll find that quite reassuring as well. Because if she's running along by your side, she can pretend to the rest of the family that she's supporting you in this noble aim of, you know, just participating and not winning, but also takes the pressure off her because basically she's just going to get whatever time you get. I don't really know what is required to run a 10k at any age. Don't act so surprised. (laughs) But um, I wonder whether you could either agree with your mother that you'll both walk it together so you can have a nice chat. Is there any shame in walking a 10k? No. It's still very good exercise. It's okay. Very good exercise. It, yeah. It, but there is shame in walking a marathon, it seems to me, unless you're dressed as a dog or a hot dog. Or, or paramedic. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Uh, but for some reason, 10k's, because they're slightly the entry-level marathon, um, it's, it seems to be one that more people people do who aren't really in a fit state to be running. You know, people who are overcoming uh, injury and illness and things like that. So it's, it's okay. You can walk a 10k, no problem. I think it's still very impressive to walk 26-mile marathon course. Admittedly, you might get in some people's way, but that's a hefty walk. More walking races, less showboat running. Why not? (laughs) Uh, So I I think asking your mum to walk it together as a fun activity is one option. The other option is sabotaging her. Sure. How would you make your parent run slower? Lego. Just strew the whole course with Lego. Yeah, or the house the day before. Don't do that. It's not very nice. And I think also you want your mum to feel good about this whole thing because if she wins, she's going to be feeling pretty cool about winning a race at 52 if she's not usually a runner. And maybe she'll be feeling so great about it that she'll buy you a cat. Hmm? (laughs) I'm considering, we are considering buying a second cat. We're seriously considering it now. Yeah, Opening up your family. It's because Coco isn't getting any younger. That, yeah, I mean, the cats don't reverse age. She's been living for the last six months whilst our house work was happening. You remember our house is being rebuilt at the moment. She's been living basically in the garden whilst the builders do the house. So she's gone sort of quasi-feral. Cool. Is it like she's in Castaway? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's got a few of Harvey's old toys lying around the garden, which are her Wilson. Um, and she started shitting down the side of the um, like pile of cement that the builders leave down the side of the house as well. Ew. So it's just like all these golden turds protruding down oh. the gutter, which is not great when you're showing people around your shiny new house extension. Why are they golden turds? Because they've been in cement, they've been dipped in sand and concrete and then rained on. Oh no, so they're like oh. permanent cement sculpture turds. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that is what she's doing. It's a bit Rachel Whitebeard, isn't it? My love for her has not dimmed, but you can see why it might. So, So the thinking was... Um, she's going to be pissed off when we introduce a new cat into the equation. We might as well do it now when she's basically spent all of winter living outside. The house that she was attached to has changed completely inside with a whole new layout. And her whole world's going to fall apart because we're about to move a two-year-old back in with her and she's already forgotten all about him. Right. Life is tough for her. Let's just do it now. Let's get a second cat. And at the same time, my wife has been working weekends in a cattery and there's a cat in there who's six years old, basically a lap cat, nice cat, uh, and the owner is an old lady who's gone into hospital and now the council have to pay the cattery fee. And it's going on for months and taking ages and the logistics of it are difficult. But basically, this cat's going to be homeless. She's going to feel responsible. We have a home. I think it might happen. I right. think we might get a second cat. Coco's already disrupted. It means she might be emotionally open to cats, just as Fluffy's mother might be. But basically, Fluffy, despite all of the advice online saying, you know, don't pressure children to get involved in running, you know, it should be a team effort, it should don't make them body conscious, you know, don't worry too much about the time they're going to get, make sure their sleep patterns aren't affected. I'll just leave you with this. Mo Farah's first race, he was 13. 
Really? So you've got to get on with it, basically. Like, it depends what you've set your sight on here and how much you want that cat. But, you know, if you want to come ninth in the English schools cross-country and go on to be our greatest ever runner, get on it. Okay, that is the end of this episode of Answer Me This. But please send us questions for next episode. All of our contact details are on our website, answermethispodcast.com And whilst you're there, uh, check out the links to following us on Twitter and Facebook and also follow the links to the Answer Me This store where you can buy our first 200 episodes uh, and our albums and our apps and donate to the show as well. And uh, also I'm doing some gigs in Australia while I'm here. Well, you've already missed the ones I did in Sydney and Melbourne by the time this comes out, but I'm doing one in Perth on the 22nd of June, the most remote big city in the world. Uh, I'm also doing a show in Wellington in New Zealand on the 16th of July. What what does Helen Zaltzman do at her live appearances these days? Oh, well, um, it's an exciting word-based hour of onstage entertainment featuring Martin doing some excellent soundtrack work. Yeah, and sing some songs. We're going to do some illusionist-type stuff. It's a good, fun show. This is linked directly to your British podcast award-winning show about language and words, The Allusionist, which people should check out if they haven't already, at theallusionist.org. What have you got going on this month, Ollie? Uh, Well, The Modern Man is on a break at the moment, so if I may direct your attentions to The Week Unwrapped. Uh, It is a show in which me and three clever people... Uh, discuss underreported, under-the-radar news stories of the week. Uh, so, for example, whilst everyone else was talking about Trump and North Korea, we did a podcast about the return of Cornish pop songs and the overprescription of Calpol. Uh, you can find that at theweekunwrapped.com. And Martin? Uh, you can tune into songbysongpodcast.com, uh, uh, our podcast about all of the songs that Tom Waits has ever recorded in chronological order. Uh, at the moment, our guest is Lily Sloan from A Therapist Walks Into a Bar podcast, and we're talking to about some of the tracks on Frank's Wild Years, uh, performed by the Steppenwolf Theatre Company with Laurie Metcalf. Laurie Metcalf? Yeah, she was out in Frank's of, Wild Years, just found that out. Out of Ladybird. Hold on, are you saying the Steppenwolf Theatre Company recorded an album with Tom Waits? Yeah, they did a play. They they performed his play, Frank's Wild Years. In the now you're interested, Ollie. Yeah. I am actually marginally interested now, yeah. Is Gary Sinise on it? He was the director. Uh, and if you just want to hear more, answer me this then uh, please do supply us with your questions, otherwise we'll have nothing to talk about. And also there's more Answer Me This. In the middle of the month, we will drop a retro Answer Me This into your feed. You have to subscribe to get it. That is the only way, and it is available for just a month. And we will be back on the first Thursday of July with a brand new episode. So rejoin us then. Bye! Bye.